depending on the movie you're watching, your anticipation of what it's going to be is really kind of, is, uh, uh, it's, it's not a generic thing. It's going to be connected to that movie. I remember um, when we talk about something like that, there's one screening in the last 20 years that really kind of makes me think about that was um, I saw the whatever the evening show was, 7.30 or 8 o'clock or 8.30, whatever the deal was. I saw the Friday evening show at the Chinese Theater of The Matrix on the Friday that it opened. Not the Saturday, not the Sunday, the Friday. You could go to the Chinese in 1999 and not get mobbed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't even get mobbed. Somebody might ask uh, <laughs> might ask you for an autograph and everything, and they make a little bit of fuss of you, but then you know, they're there to see the movie, so they all calm down. Um, so I remember the place was jam-packed. It was jam-packed, and there was a real electricity in the air. It was really, really exciting. And part of the reason we were there wasn't because we read reviews. It was because the TV spots and it was even more the TV spots than the theatrical trailer. The TV spots really kind of turned the audience on. Whoa. Forget everything you know. What is happening to me? All I can tell you is that you're in danger. Forget everything you've seen. It made us all want to see that movie this opening weekend. So it was the TV spots that really kind of put all those asses into those seats on Friday. And, and there was a, that certain electricity that was in the air that was going on. We were all waiting for it to start. But then this thought hit me that was really kind of profound. And that was, it's easy to talk about the Matrix now because we know the secret of the Matrix. But they didn't tell you any of that in any of the promotions, in any of the, 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 uh, the, the, the big movie trailer or any of the TV spots. So we were excited about this movie, but we really didn't know what we were going to see. We didn't really know what to expect. We did not know the mythology at all. I mean, at all. We had to discover that. And so there was this moment of me realizing how excited everybody was for what was going to happen. But we really didn't know anything. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. And I was like, God, can you imagine the idea of, of, of turning an audience on so much that they're there, loaded for bear, full of piss and vinegar on the Friday that the movie opens, but we don't really know what we're excited about? We don't really know what's going to happen? And then, then, then that movie happens? It was a really, it was a, a, it was a profound experience. And I, and I had enough foresight to put the thoughts together before the lights went down. I mean, I've never done heroin, mm -hmm. but I imagine an experience like that, that frisson in the air, mm -hmm. is sort of like chasing the dragon. Like, I want that again. Or in the case of making films, mm -hmm. I want to give people that. I want to give well, people that Well, I definitely do feeling. like giving people that. Literally, just sitting in the theater, just knowing that this audience, as jazz as they are, have no idea what to expect. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Welcome to the final episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your 
I'm your host, film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is the conclusion of our three-part miniseries where Quentin Tarantino and I talk about five movies that he has programmed at his own movie theater, The New Beverly. Point Blank, Enter the Dragon, Valley Girl, Hollywood Shuffle, and Boogie Nights. And from there, talk about everything. His life, his career, and his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has hit theaters, so if you have not seen it and you dodge spoilers the way that Neo dodges bullets in The Matrix, proceed with caution. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. So far, we've talked about how baby Quentin was born into watching bullets in the 1967 thriller Point Blank. And then covered a pivotal decade in his life that starts with 10-year-old Quentin adrift in Tennessee and desperate to get back to Los Angeles so he can watch Enter the Dragon. It ends with 20-year-old Quentin, now a high school dropout adrift again in L.A., watching movies like Valley Girl and otherwise not doing much of anything. He wants to be that director telling stories on screen, but how does it get there? You know what happens next. Quentin gets a clerking job at Video Archives in Manhattan Beach, making $200 a week. From here, most interviews get a little fuzzy. Video store clerk and dot dot dot. Overnight success. Let's fill in those dots. Quentin worked at Video Archives around five years, and at first, he's feeling pretty breezy. Being the Brainiac Video Archives guy made him a little locally famous in a, hey, that's the Brainiac Video Archives guy kind of way. But three years into the job, Quentin's ambition kicks in, and he begins to feel stuck. He starts throwing himself what he calls detest fests, really downer one-person parties where he'd yell at himself for wasting his life. Then a few things happen. He begins to study acting and go out on auditions. The biggest gig he lands is as one of 10 Elvis impersonators on an episode of The Golden Girls, the one where Sophia gets married. Either I mixed the Elvis list with the wedding list, or everyone in Max's family appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. What I love about that clip, by the way, which, oh, you can find on YouTube, is that nine of the Elvises are staring at the Golden Girls. Only Quentin has his eyes closed, fully in character, singing for himself. Quentin also got a small job as a production assistant on a Dolph Lundgren exercise video a Rocky IV Cashin that's actually surprisingly artsy and intelligent and creative. Though that's all Dolph and not Quentin, who was just fetching waters and moving cables and building his mental muscles for when he would get to be in charge. The intensity of modern life, the constant flow of information, personal relationships, career pressures, making it, being somebody, overachieving to live the high-technology lifestyle. The workout tape was called Maximum Potential. I like to imagine Quentin taking it to heart. Because around then, he and two Video Archives co-workers, Craig Heyman and Roger Avery, they get serious about writing scripts and making their own movies. And they're not alone. In this year, 1987, two years before Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape premieres at Sundance and gets credited with launching the indie movie movement that will soon include Slacker and Metropolitan and El Mariachi and Clerks and, of course, Quentin Tarantino's own Reservoir Dogs, 
there are already outsider filmmakers making interesting no-budget work. You know, I don't know what that's going to be like, but I know that we're all part of it. I mean, it's new physics. You can't look at something without changing it, you know, anything. One of them is Robert Townsend, an actor and comedian frustrated by trying to break into the business, especially as a black actor and comedian sick of auditioning for parts that were just pathetic, insulting stereotypes. He put his frustrations into his own film, a comedy called Hollywood Shuffle, that stars him as, well, an aspiring actor named Bobby, who's trying to get his career started in an industry that barely even writes black characters as three-dimensional humans. Like this mock TV show Townsend splices into the movie. Thursday nights at 8 p.m., America's favorite TV show, There's a Bat in My House, the show that asks the burning question, can a black bat from Detroit find happiness with a white suburban family? Starring America's favorite funny man, the hilarious zany B.B. Sanders as Batty Boy. That's all it's not. Can a bat hang upside down in this cave and get some sleep? He's half bat, half soul brother. Say what? But together he adds up to big laughs. There's a bat in my house. Thursday, 8pm. Hollywood Shuffle was co-written by Keenan Ivory Wayans and an Italian comedian named Dom Herrera, who both also act in the movie. Keenan plays one of Bobby's co-workers at a fast food joint named Winky Dinky Dog, who thinks he should give up his dreams. Okay, now look, I don't want to bust your bubble, but you ain't never gonna make it at the acting thing. I have seen you on TV, and I'm telling you now. Let me wrap it up. Hey man, I saw the film you did on TV the other night. It sucked, Bobby. Give it up. You'll never be a step in Fletcher. Never. You don't even know nobody famous. Nobody, nobody. Who do you know? Your uncle. He tried. <laughs> Look at him now, sweeping up hand of Bobby shots. Right. And Dom is sitting there on the set of a movie Bobby does get cast in called Jive Time Jimmy's Revenge, backing up the director and casting agent who give Bobby notes like this. Okay. Let's go again. Excuse me, Sydney. Before you do, I have another very good idea. Yeah. Could you tell him to be a little more, you know? Yeah, Bobby. Uh, Bobby. I need uh, a little more black, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, stick your ass out, uh, bug the eyes. You know how they move, you know? Yeah, j- jive ass. Jive ass. Let's slate it. Let's go again. Okay, sorry, sorry, Sydney. Scene 10, Baker 1. And action. I loved it, my brother. He was my main man, baby. Hollywood Shuffle was made for $100,000 most of which came from Robert Townsend charging it to his visa. But it earned $5 million and launched Robert and Keenan's careers, which, in the micro-indie world, makes it a mega-success. And to Quentin Tarantino in 1987, it's gotta be an example of making it, being somebody, overachieving, and taking control of your life. I mean, this is a movie that really famously, it was like a super indie where Robert Townsend... Yeah, he paid for it on, uh, with uh, credit, credit cards. cards. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, it was like, uh, then... Was that inspirational, though, to you? To the idea, like, you can just make a thing. You can just make my best Well, yes, it was thing. inspirational, but it, it wasn't inspiration because of the movie he made. It was the inspiration, it was the inf- inspiration involved in him making it. Now, to me... Hollywood Shuffle was actually inspirational for like the way he did it and also the way it could be done. Uh, And what I mean by that is if you're trying to make, to make a feature from beginning to end on no money is, is something. We got to pause here for a tangent. My best friend's birthday is a $5,000 black and white 16 millimeter amateur movie that at this point in Quentin's life, he'd been working on forever. 
Craig Heyman, that video archives coworker I mentioned a few minutes ago, he was the first one to start writing the script, and then Quentin came on board as co-writer, co-star, and director. Quentin plays Clarence, a guy desperate to give his best friend Mickey, that's Craig, an awesome birthday. Here is Quentin's Clarence at a bakery, picking out the cake and getting into a debate about movies and Elvis. It's a little choppy because this is a $5,000 16mm amateur movie. I mean, as, as, as a singer, Elvis, I mean, as a performer with albums and recordings, nobody could lay a hand on him. I, I agree, okay? All right, so, so right? Right, I'm... Okay, I'm, all right, so we got no problem, hey, right? We got no problem as, as far as... As, as an saying. actor, Clarence, he was a lost cause. This is where we differ. No. This is where we were no. always no. different. There's no argument. Point. There's no argument. We're always going to do that. I'm sorry. Same goddamn... Marlon Brando is a great actor, And Clarence. he made some shitty movies. Contessa from Hong Kong never, is a shitty never movie. Never made a shitty movie, Clarence. Contessa from Hong never Kong Never made a shitty movie. If there's any bells ringing in your head right now, besides, of course, the complete and total fixation on pop culture, here's why. Because when Quentin gave up on completing My Best Friend's Birthday, he recycled some of the ideas into his next script, True Romance. He even recycled Christian Slater's character's name, Clarence. Elvis, he was pretty good. The most women. Yeah. Most women. You know, I always said, if I had to fuck a guy, you know, I mean, had to. My life depended on it. I'd fuck Elvis. As for My Best Friend's Birthday, half of the film was lost in a fire. A literal fire. Which means when Quentin looks at what Robert Townsend managed to pull off with Hollywood Shuffle, he gets how hard it was. And he gets how Robert completed his movie on the cheap by constructing it around Little Skits, the in-living-color sketch comedy model that Keenan would eventually put on TV. Here's the most famous bit. It's called Black Acting School. Hi, my name is Robert Taylor. And I'm a black actor. I had to learn to play these slave parts. And now you can too, at Hollywood's first black acting school. It teaches you everything. Learn jive talk 101. You motherfucking jive turkey motherfucker. All right, all right, that's good, that's good. You work, all right, you try it. You, you fucking mothers. Fucking no, 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 man, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. Watch me, man. Just be cool. Jive turkey motherfucker. But if you've got the kind of movie where you can do this sequence and you can pour all your time and effort into this sequence and then it's done and then you can go down for a little bit and then raise the money to do the next sequence, well, that's different. You know, that's like if you can do a, a few short films and you figured out a way to bring your short films together and turn it into a feature. Well, that's, it took him two and a half years to finish it. Yeah, well, that's a different thing, though, because now you're not just hanging and trying to tell this one story. You, you have these little mini movies that you can do, and you actually have the sense of accomplishment when you do them, and then you can pull them together. So, like, in the case of Hollywood Shuffle, though, it's like, um, you know, it's got two really good scenes in it. It's got the black acting school, which is really, really terrific, and it's got uh, sneaking in the movies, which is really terrific. And the rest of it, is whatever, all right? It's I don't even think it's a real movie. Uh, uh, but those sequences are terrific, and that's all it really needed to be. You know, he had those two great sequences, and the rest of it was was fairly inoffensive, and he's a really sweet guy, and so you really like the guy, but those were the two scenes that made you, that made you leave the house and go to the movies, and I was happy enough to see those. Robert Townsend is playing with so many different types of styles within this film. You know, he's making, like, sitcoms and noirs and infomercials and action movies. He's making a slave movie. And it made me think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this idea of you getting to mm -hmm. show everything you can do, everything you want to do within the confines of a movie. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I never thought about it like that, especially in terms of uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's interesting. The similarity really jumped out at me because, like Hollywood Shuffle, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is full of skits. Moments Quentin seizes to make a few minutes of old-school, underappreciated things he never got to make because, in the 60s, he was a kid. A dance show, a talk show, an FBI show, a retro cheapo TV western. He even throws in one minute of his own take on the German POW classic, The Great Escape. We have, in effect, put all our rotten eggs in one basket. And we intend to watch this basket carefully. Very wise. But as Quentin and I keep talking about Hollywood Shuffle, it seems there's another point of connection that Quentin doesn't seem interested in exploring. He winds up redirecting the question. This movie goes very hard on young black actors being stuck either cast as a slave or a butler. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you've been very smart about writing real roles for people. Mm. Was this on your mind at all? Well, no, it's like, you know, uh, know, I actually think him, his real life dealing with it is not real. I mean, it's very, it seems like an episode of what's happening. All right. But the way he deals with that in the black acting school bit is very funny. See, that was, you know, that there was, there's levels of wit and wisdom uh, uh, to what he, uh, to what he says when he, when he says it with satire. And, um, and it's also very funny, the sneaking in the movies, the, uh, 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 what's funny about that is the, the two street kids who love movies, but their their interpretation of the movies as opposed to a Siskel or an Ebert. That's really, really funny. I mean, the the modern day poignancy Robert Town doing what he's doing during the course of the day, I didn't buy that any like I, you know, I mean he might as well have been uh uh he he might as well have been uh, a Raj, uh Raj from uh, uh what's happening. All right. But uh actually I think a movie that associated with uh Hollywood Shuffle that I like much more, and I actually think holds up better as a movie and has an even better subtextual through line is, because this is a subtext, it's trying to say what the movie's about, is the film that Keenan Ivory Waynes did, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker is the next movie Keenan Ivory Wayans made after co-writing Hollywood Shuffle. This time, he directed... And it also has little pop-out skits, like this one about a contest called Pimp of the Year. We jump in during the talent competition, where a pimp named Fly Guy is reciting a poem. My bitch better have my money. Through rain, sleet, or snow. My hoe better have my money. I'm telling you, that boy's a genius. Tell it! Not half, not some but all my cash. Because if she don't, I'm going to put my foot dead in her ass. I love that film. One, because it's a really good takeoff on black exploitation cinema. But also, at that time, it was one of the best... It was a... It was a takeoff where it was obvious that the people who made the movie liked those movies. So there's a genuine affection to the movies that they're skewering and making fun of. But there was something else. There was more where Hollywood Shuffle wears its heart on its sleeve, what it wants, its issue that it wants to talk about. The subtext in deep inside of uh, I'm gonna get you sucker that runs from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie is the vague loss of cultural identity that happened to urban black folks 
after the after the the soulful seventies and after the soul music seventies and the soulful seventies and the black exploitation seventies, but before rap came about to take its place, and black culture became very gentrified around that time, and uh, you know the pimp hats went away and the the wild outfits and the out, uh, the one piece suits that you saw all through uh, the seventies and the Jack Hill movies, you know they were gone, but they weren't replaced by anything. And the movie actually deals with that. It deals with this loss of cultural identity in, uh, in America inside of the film. Here's the thing. If you look at the body of Quentin Tarantino's work, one thing that separates him from the majority of the other filmmakers of his 90s generation and honestly, the vast majority of the generations before is he has written major lead roles for black actors and launched or relaunched or simply supported several careers. Ving Rhames, Jamie Foxx, Vivica A. Fox, of course, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jackie Brown's Pam Greer. It's like so mind-boggling. I'm going to have to read it again. And I'm just overwhelmed, I mean, by the sheer fact that someone would sit down and write something for me and have the confidence to say, here, read it. First, read it. I'm thinking, I didn't tell him. I didn't call him right away to tell him how good it was and that his, his style, because I was so afraid. They said, well, I just wanted you to read it and see if you liked it, and we're not going to do it, and I just wanted to see you know, if you liked it. And I was like, oh, because I don't want to have my, my heart broken on something that's so good. you know." And yet he's had a hard time shaking off the public idea that he might just be, well, like Dom Herrera's white Hollywood shuffle screenwriter, here rapping over the closing credits. Those words and they're really dry. But what I learned today is really live. You see, I learned about blacks from TV, so please don't be angry with me. Because in Clinton's first films, when he was desperate to make an impression, yes, he wrote several great black characters, and he also used the N-word a lot and cheaply. And worse, he put it in the mouths of characters the audience was supposed to like, like himself in Pulp Fiction. He doesn't use the word lightly anymore, and now the only people who say it are villains. But Quentin brought this scrutiny on himself. That big early mistake cast a shadow over his career, and it made people suspicious of trusting him in, say, Django Unchained. I really wanted to ask him about that, and he really didn't seem to want to get into it. But becoming a major director means accepting that your choices and your work deserve to be judged. That is one of the trade-offs. You get to put your brain on screen for millions of people to see, and millions of people get to make their own opinion of your movie and of you. Which is something Quentin is starting to learn when the last film he and I are going to talk about hits theaters. It's 1997, Quentin is 34, and he has spent several years as the hottest young director in the world. But his new movie, Jackie Brown, is not the talk of Hollywood. Instead, it's Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Time for an intermission. This episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is brought to you by our buddies at Shudder. Shudder is the streaming video service if you are a person who loves horror and thrillers. 
is for $5.99 a month, just $5.99 a month, you can have access to their complete, awesome, unique collection of exclusive and original film series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. You could call Shudder the Netflix for horror, but I'd be kind of underselling the awesome people who work at Shudder and curate and program some amazing stuff. They go to film festivals all over the world, they find things they love, they resurrect old films that they also love, and they present them to you, stuff that is hard to find anywhere else. And then you can stream them ad-free and unlimited all the time on whatever device you want to use. I adore Shudder. If you're a Ringer podcast fan, uh, you know that I did a whole podcast on John Carpenter's Halloween. They have right now on Shudder John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. If you have not seen that, do it now. They've also got some classic Brian De Palma films. You know, I love Brian De Palma and they have Raising Cain. They've got Phantom of the Paradise. Ah, that is a double feature. If you're into learning about history and film and how all of these things connect, Eli Ross' History of Horror series is on there. I have watched this a lot. I am a big fan, particularly of the zombie episode. And, ah, they've got the first six Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Plus, here's a movie that you might not have heard of, maybe you have, that relates to what we're about to talk about when this show gets back on. Knife Plus Heart. It is a movie set in the 70s about the porn industry. To try Shutter free for 30 days, go to Shutter.com and use promo code Tarantino. That's Shutter, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, promo code Tarantino to try Shutter free for 30 days. And now, back to the show. Boogie Nights is a giant ensemble film about seven years in the San Fernando Valley porn industry. Our hero is Eddie, a.k.a. Dirk Diggler, a young kid from Torrance, California, a suburb where young Tarantino lived too, who becomes an X-rated star. Dirk, of course, is played by Mark Wahlberg. And the movie is also about all of Dirk's friends and colleagues, chief among them, Burt Reynolds as adult director Jack Horner, who takes his work very seriously. The story starts in 1977 and ends in 1984, and in between, there is a lot of drama. Drugs, jealousy, narcissism, and Jack's resistance against the porn industry's transition from making proper films shown in theaters to VHS tapes watched at home. This is the future. Videotape tells the truth. Wait a minute. You come into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. That the future is tape, videotape, and not film. That it's amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie on videotape. In this moment in 1997, Quentin is Dirk Diggler, the brash kid who's been winning all the awards. But he's also Jack Horner, the artiste, the cineast, the defender of films, good and bad, respected or not, that he will collect and someday show at his own movie theater. Before all this, though, he's also that kid who dropped out of high school at 15 and worked at an adult movie theater, so he's uniquely qualified to fact-check Boogie Nights. You worked as an usher at the Pussycat Theater at the same time in the late 70s when this movie was set. I mean, did this movie feel really true to you in that way? Was this what the movies were like? It was interesting, almost like my story about uh, being in Tennessee, where, uh, um, or I guess with the KRQ music, where you're... You're very close to something, not realizing it's going to be important later because it's just a thing and it's there. Um, little did I know that when I was working at the Pussycat Theater that I was overseeing the end of, of a porn era because I didn't really never cared for 
porno movies. Even I, I, and I was like 16 when I was working in there, lying about my age so I could work there. And I even remember thinking, oh man, I can't believe it. I'm going to work with the movie theater my whole life. And now I work in a movie theater where I don't want to see the movies. Um, but that whole thing in Boogie Nights where it's like, oh, everything's changing now. Now it's officially the 80s. And now uh, they're going to stop shooting on film and it's going to n- now be all digital and video. And and it's and it's, it's talked about in Boogie Nights like it's the end of the end. It's, it's, it's the end of this time. Is, uh, this glorious time is over. And it's when the movie starts becoming a bummer. Um, I mean, that's the way we're talking now, you know, yeah, about, yeah. about the rise of Netflix, which makes me wonder, do you yourself – feel like you've reached a level where you're immune to any sort of shakeups because of a change in tech and the way we watch movies. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm immune to it, but I'm just, uh, I don't know how much more I'm going to be a part of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm staging my exit <laughs> and I'm hopefully I'm staging it in the right kind of way. Um, although Paul Thomas Anderson has publicly called bullshit on you saying you're going to return, you're going to quit after your 10th movie. I think his exact quote was, I don't know how he could say that or how he could take himself seriously when he says that. Yeah, well, I, I would imagine he would say that, all right, you know. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but but there is a you know there is an interesting aspect though of of uh, of working at the Pussycat Theater when they were showing these films on film, and the ones that and it's like it's it's, it's everything is you know it's a it's about ready to turn into home video. It's about ready. To, everything is going to turn into Swedish erotica, volume one through thirty six, and everything's going to uh, you know be like that. But I'm st- when I'm still there, it's still the seventies porno. It's still the they're the the seventies porno stars and Net Haven. They're still kind of the big stars. Vanessa Del Rio, they're kind of the big stars. They're not going to. They haven't been turned over to the Shauna Grants of the world and the uh, Tracy Lords of the world. They haven't shown up yet. So I, I literally was there at the last bastion. And I even remember watching some of them. And now I'm kind of, like I said, I'm glad that I was there to actually experience that event. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. I believe in miracles. Since you came along, you sex a thing. Yeah, I mean, when Boogie Nights comes out, you know, people are comparing Paul Thomas Anderson to you. I mean, mm-hmm. Roger Ebert said that he was getting the kind of attention no director had had since mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, it seems like people are sort of poising you guys to be competitive, but I was... Lending, I mean, you've been very supportive of this film. Do you feel like you and Paul Thomas Anderson are part of this last clique of directors, maybe Nolan in there from your era, who got to have a big debut at Cannes or at mm-hmm. Sundance? And then you got to have your own career. You weren't shunted into making a Marvel film? Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was a few of us at that. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was the time where, you know, American independent cinema was, you know, this was the year, this was the time where I was going all around the world to film festivals and American Independent Cinema was the most exciting cinema in the world. You know, the way, you know, for a for a while, Korean cinema will be like the most exciting cinema in the world. And another time it'll be, it'll be this or the French New Wave. Well, we just had it, we had a situation in the early 90s where this was the exciting place. And it was, you know, a very... It was it was different, but it was actually kind of even related to the whole uh, uh, um, alternative music scene that was happening simultaneously at the same time for a lot of the same reasons. You know, uh, you, uh, uh, don't watch this corporate entertainment. You know, watch it from us. This is what we mean what we're doing. And so um, I remember uh, actually Paul got in touch with me because he was uh, – uh, 
he was doing his big press for Boogie Nights and like Manola Dargis was interviewing him for the LA Weekly and the you know the whole subject was jumping off of me of like a, a, a director as rock star. How does that work? And out of the blue, I got this phone call and it was like, hey, like I'm Paul Thomas Anderson and I, 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 we met once before, you probably don't remember. But, uh, you know, everybody's talking to me about you and talking to me about your career and they're talking about this and that. And it's just, they mention you so much that I think it's about time that me and you get to know each other and talk so we don't have any weirdness about it. And so we got together and, and uh, we had some drinks and then we became great friends ever since. Who's this? Eddie, this is Scotty J. He's a friend. He works on some of the films. Nice oh, to meet you. Yeah, me too. Uh, are you going to be working or? Um, maybe. Oh, probably. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Because how'd you meet Jack? Because I work on the film, you know, sometimes. So, if you ever, yeah. Hey, Eddie! Boogie Nights is a film that feels at once very alive and full of ghosts. Like you're watching the spirits of people who don't yet know that they're extinct. It's almost the same feeling as watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like Boogie Nights, Quentin has recreated an entire world, and then within that world, movie sets. In Boogie Nights and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's all these dimensions stacked on top of each other real history and fictional history and the film-within-a-film fictions that these characters are creating. There's a scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth drives Pussycat the Manson Girl to where she and her gang live, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch, as you know if you've seen the movie or if you're into that real history of the Manson murders, was a fake Wild West filming location for cowboy versus outlaw shows like The Lone Ranger and Bonanza. Quentin invents a fictional showdown between these hippie outlaws and Cliff Booth, the closest thing his movie has to a badass sheriff. And he sets it at the same place where dozens of fake sheriffs face down hundreds of fake outlaws. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. The twist is, the Manson family is not fake. Quentin wants to invent his own Lone Ranger, someone with the potential to prevent the Manson murders, and therefore prevent 1969 Hollywood from changing. I think grown-up Quentin knows that this Hollywood needs to change. Here in his film, it's dominated by aging white guys who, to be honest, are not making a solid argument for why Hollywood should keep them around. Meanwhile, there's glimpses of characters who represent the future, from Bruce Lee to a young eight-year-old feminist who wants to be the next great actor to Sharon Tate herself who Quentin reminds us was a promising comedian and actress who deserves to be appreciated for her life, not her death. And then there's the faces we don't see at all, like Samuel L. Jackson, because in 1969, Hollywood wasn't writing roles for him. And yet, this is Quentin's fairy tale, his bedtime story, a wish made by a six-year-old boy who wants to grow up to be part of the movies he already loves. In Quentin's fairy tale, everyone he worshipped when he was a kid turns out okay. Just like Boogie Nights, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is determined to give the characters it loves a happy ending. The old Hollywood cowboys don't have to get run off by the easy rider bikers. In fact, when DiCaprio's Rick Dalton confronts Tex Watson, the killer who in real life will stab Sharon Tate and six other victims, Rick calls him Dennis Hopper. Rick, by the way, is based on Burt Reynolds, one of those old Hollywood TV cowboys. He played Quint in the show Gunsmoke who did make the transition into the 1970s and beyond, eventually earning a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for his performance in Boogie Nights. I keep feeling there's this ghost of Burt Reynolds. I mean, I know that you're named after his character in Gunsmoke, that he is so much who Leo's Rick Dalton is Mm -hmm. based by and inspired by. 
that he did Deliverance with John Borman. <laughs> you know, th- there's so <laughs> all much. All roads lead back to Burt. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he you cast him as Spawn and he didn't get a chance yeah. to play Spawn. But it's the last role he ever played, though, because he he played George Spawn at, in the rehearsals that we did. We He did a full day of rehearsals and he played George Spawn at the script reading. So that's actually the last role he ever played. Gosh, I mean, that's sort of a beautiful honor. And I just want to mm-hmm. hear what you think about how his character here in Boogie Nights defines what he wants from his career. He says he wants to make a film that is true and right and dramatic. Well, you know, I actually, well, one, I think Burt Reynolds is 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 fantastic in the movie. Me and Paul have talked about this, though. I mean, I actually think, I think there's a slight flaw in Boogie Nights. And, and, the, and the flaw in Boogie Nights is um, the perception of uh, the Burt Reynolds character. And what I mean by that is this. Paul can say he's not based on the director, Gerard Damiano, who directed Devil and Mrs. Jones and Deep Throat. He is. <laughs> he obviously is. He looks exactly like him. And, and Gerard Damiano has a very unique look. So you have to actually make him, Burt Reynolds doesn't look like that. So you actually have to go out of your way to make him look like Gerard Damiano with the, the gray and black uh, uh, Van Dyke that he wore and the kind of uh, wavy uh, uh, gray hair that he wore. That, that's not Burt Reynolds' look. That is Gerard Damiano's look. So he went out of his way to make the guy look like his exact double. It has taken 2,000 years of civilization, the President's P- Commission on Pornography, and 10 or 12 rulings by the Supreme Court of the United States to allow you, as a consenting adult, to view this motion picture. If you want to hear how serious Gerard took his work, this is him speaking out against the country backsliding into censorship when Deep Throat was put on trial for obscenity. Society seems to be crumbling, but a careful, calculated look will prove that some tearing down is always necessary to improve. A man who does not make mistakes is usually a man who does not do anything. We are learning from the mistakes of the past. So you can't say, uh, I didn't mean to be that guy. Yes, he did. Here's my problem with the film, though. Yes, I do think it's honest about being a filmmaker. But my problem with it, though, is when he makes the cop movie, <laughs> the porno cop movie, and he's killing himself doing it, and then you see the film, the film looks like a piece of shit. It looks horrible. Now, I've see, I, believe me, I, I've seen more porno movies than Paul have because I worked at the porno theater. All right? Uh, and I saw a lot of movies crappy like that. He has the Burt Reynolds character say, I think, you know, he says it in the, in the full-on moving the close-up in him, I think this is my greatest work yet. I think this is my finest work yet. This is the best work we've ever done. It's a real film, Jack. It feels good. You made it fly. No. This is a film I want them to remember me by. Gerard Damiano was a better director than that. Gerard Damiano's better footage looked drastically better than that cop crap. And a filmmaker knows when they made something good. Yes, exactly. Gerard Damiano was a good enough filmmaker to know the difference between, oh, wow, this is the best movie I've ever done. And no, this one has a little bit of a story. But we still shot it on 16 millimeter, uh, you know, in crappy daylight with no light. And, you know, and it looks like what, what it looks like. 
Burt Reynolds suggests that he's more of a director than that, that he wouldn't know the difference. Gerard Damiano definitely would know the difference, and he's playing Gerard Damiano. So I think it's a cheap line because that character would know that that work is not the best work he could possibly do. So directors never lose perspective on what they've made. Yeah, you can definitely lose perspective, but you don't think some piece of junk that you did is the best work you've ever going to do. (laughs) There's no consensus on what Quentin's best film is, but that's one of the things I find most compelling about his career. And it's been great using these other people's movies to talk to him about his own work. bag of five films. What do these five films you think say to you about you? Oh, I don't know. Well, you you chose them. You chose them first. You chose them first by programming them. Yes, I did program them. Uh, uh, But, uh, um, no, I think think it's an interesting collection of films. It was one of the things I was actually, oh, I that's kind of why I had the idea. Well, well, let Amy. I chose them, so let Amy choose. Give her, send her a bunch of calendars, and let her choose it. So I was kind of curious to see what you would, what you would pick from, and what you would choose, and how you would make the connections. And you did not disappoint me. You did a great job. <laughs> do you see new connections now? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I mean, yeah, uh, but I'm not looking for connections. <laughs> I'm not necessarily looking. You're right. My job is to look for connections. Your job is to to just make the dots. Yes, exactly. (laughs) My job is to throw it out there and then you figure it out, how how it landed. Those of you who've been listening along to these three episodes of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation, making connections is your job too. Because every movie is worth talking about. We've been inside Quentin's head for a while now, and if there's one idea in there that speaks up even louder than the rest, it's that movies are for sharing. I've so enjoyed sharing my conversation with Quentin, and with that, I will see you at the movies. Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is produced by The Ringer and written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our executive producer is Sean Fennessy, and our senior producer is Bobby Wagner. Theme music by Evan Campbell, and special thanks to Bill Simmons and Juliet Littman. <laughs>